Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 4 in some detail. But I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, through verse 11. Through verse 11. Let's, uh, let's pray before we begin. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that your word uh, creates, how it created and how it creates anew. And we're thankful, Father, that uh, you uh, have called us. You've um, brought about new creation in our lives. And we just pray that uh, you would that you would do that uh, not only once, but continually, that uh, your spirit might bring about new creation each day in our lives as we overcome uh, the sins that uh, we are afflicted with and as we overcome the, the hurts and the troubles that uh, we face in this world. Father, may we, may we embody the, the death and resurrection of Christ each day in our lives as we both die and are raised again to new life. And Father, we just pray that uh, you would be in our midst today, that you would be in, your, in our midst by your spirit, and uh, that you would do a great work uh, here among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 8 of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, I would say for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here in chapter 8, Paul is turning to the practical outworking of the reckoning of the death and resurrection to those who are in Christ Jesus. Moving to a more general statement of what has been accomplished in this reverse, reversal of fortunes that has come about in the Messiah's death and in through the Messiah's death and resurrection. What has come about is both uh, for Israel under the law and the condemnation that that law brought and the Gentiles who are under sin and its condemnation. And we should say here that effectively both Israel and the Gentiles 
end up in the same situation or a similar situation. Though Israel's responsibility and condemnation is much greater because she was under the law. This seems to have seems to be the point of Paul's excursion through Romans 7 and many things that we've seen before in the book. Paul's argument has been that the law actually accentuated the Adamic situation in Israel. The sin that was in the world was magnified within Israel. Recall that the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, has done its condemning work in Israel. The I and the we of chapter 7. The law was used by sin to bring condemnation through the flesh of Israel to Israel under the law. Sin, which was already working in the wider world, brought death. Paul says that sin took an occasion by the commandment. It deceived Israel, the me of 711, and killed Israel, sending her into death's exile. Now, there are some assumptions here in chapter 8, which Paul brings to this chapter from chapter 7, that if not properly understood, will hinder our understanding of verse 8. And in fact, this is a major problem with the study of chapter 8. It often simply treats chapter 8 in isolation from the rest of the book. We should talk just a moment about what exactly condemnation is. Condemnation is the is one, the condemnation of the law, Israel's law. But in this section, Paul is also bringing up under the verdict of condemnation all of humanity so as to declare, to declare that all who are in Christ Jesus now abide in a no condemnation status on the basis of Jesus's work. The situation of chapter two of Romans, where both Gentiles and Jews are in the dock and will inevitably be judged in the future, whether apart from the law, the Gentiles, or by the law, the Jews, is now being worked on in the present time on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. Another way of saying this is that in the present, we have been, and they have been, in the Messiah, justified by faith, or put into the covenant in Christ Jesus. So often we read these chapters and, and even the verses in isolation, and we fail to see how this one part connects to the rest of it. It is essential then that we back up for just a moment and examine exactly what it means, what Paul means by condemnation, and how it is that he can now speak of there being no condemnation to those who are in Christ, both the Jews who were under the law and to the Gentiles who were not under the law. Back in chapter 5, verse 12 and following, Paul began developing a contrast and a comparison between the effect of Adam's transgression and the effect of the free gift brought about by Jesus. And Paul there says that the effect of Adam's transgression and the effect brought about by the free gift of the one man, Jesus the Messiah, are not equal. The free gift of Jesus far exceeded the condemnation brought by the transgression of the one Adam, the one man Adam. For he says there in verse 16 that the gift is not like the effect of the one who sinned. The effect of the one man, uh, the one man's sin was condemnation coming to everyone. 
but the free gift is qualitatively superior in that it overturned and reversed death for the many. That is, it reversed the condemnation brought about through the fixed principle that sin leads to death. All people share in this condemnation. Thus, this is one part of the condemnation that he's talking about in 8.1, the condemnation that came to everyone through Adam's sin. But Paul doesn't oversimplify things, ever. He doesn't only say that all are guilty of Adam's sin, leading to death, and are therefore in need of life, while then ignoring the law. He can't. To do so would, fail to ex- would be to fail to explain to the Jew how his situation, though with a similar outcome, death, is unique from that of the Gentile. He takes us through chapter 7 on an excursion to Mount Sinai, adding another layer to his argument. Israel, he says, by receiving the law adds transgression to sin, compounding sin's effect. We might say that sin and its condemnation turned into more serious sin, otherwise known as transgression, and took Israel into the death of exile, scattered among the nations. This, as we saw, was what Paul meant when he said, when the law came, sin revived and I died. This was a way of talking about the way that Israel was free before the law and living, When the law came, sin revived. In other words, uh, sin took the occasion by the commandment, revived sin within, within the flesh of Israel, and then it killed Israel as a result. And then the rest of that generation died in the wilderness. In a a unique way, the law, though promising life, was unable to give life. And this is a very important point that we're going to come back to in, in chapter eight. The law, promised life, but it was unable to give it. Instead, it brought increased condemnation to Israel. It compounded the sin of Adam, like compounding of interest in reverse. And it is from this condemnation that Israel herself, called to be the people of one God, would need to be delivered from. This is what Paul says in chapter 7. They must be delivered from the law. Though the law is good and holy and just, Israel must be delivered from it because it is condemning them. And indeed, it was through this situation, bringing all under sin, that God was bringing about his before, before now unrevealed purposes in the Messiah. The new exodus, which would be announced, the new exodus out of slavery to sin, leading unto death, which was ruling So the sin was ruling prior to Christ, both among the Gentiles and then especially in Israel through the law. Thus, Paul has neatly wrapped up everyone under sin. The Gentiles in their idol-worshiping state of chapter 1 and the Jew in his failed state, having been condemned under the law of God that promised but was unable to give life. And the answer for both Jew and Gentile now in their varying states of condemnation is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, Israel's true king and the, world, the world's true Lord. Here in chapter 8, Paul has moved back to a more general answer to the Gentiles' general condemnation and Israel's more specific condemnation by incorporating all believers 
into the benefit into the benefits that accrue to anyone who is in the Messiah. God is now in the Messiah, he says, bringing about a new exodus led by his king, his son, by whom he would deliver his new people from the slavery of sin and death into new covenant membership and to the renewal of the covenant that leads to life. Now, this brings us to one of the central but often overlooked aspects of this chapter, namely the renewal of the covenant, which was to be renewed as Israel was called out of exile and underwent a new exodus. The key to seeing this, both here and elsewhere, is to realize that the coming of the Spirit is defined as the renewal of the covenant. In other words, when Paul talks about the coming of the Spirit, this is the same thing as saying the covenant is being renewed, and that the express purpose of the coming of the Spirit was to enable an obedience to Torah that was was not otherwise available to those under the Torah. So hear this language. When, When you read Romans 8, hear covenant language. The language of the renewal of the covenant, which comes about by the Spirit of God indwelling believers and producing an obedience to Torah that was otherwise not available under Torah. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, do you know the Lord? For they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sin I will remember no more. This passage in Jeremiah 31 is also echoing Deuteronomy 30, which itself promises that Israel, when she is out among the nations, having been scattered among the nations, living in the death of exile, will call to mind the blessings and the curses which have come upon her, and because of which she was driven into exile. Then she shall return to the Lord her God, and she will obey his voice according to all that is commanded in the Torah, she and her children, with all of her heart and with all of her soul. Then the Lord her God will turn her captivity and will have compassion upon her and will return and gather her from all the nations where the Lord her God has driven her. For this the Lord will need to circumcise the heart, which he promises to do at the same time the covenant is renewed. Paul is describing here in Romans 8 and earlier in Romans how the renewal of the covenant has come about through the sending of the Spirit. The renewal of the covenant and what it looks like in somewhat practical terms for that to go into effect. And if we fail to hear this covenantal language when Paul talks about the Spirit, we will miss the enormity, the importance of what is happening in this chapter. Let's turn to the text for just a moment. And look at verses 1 through 4. Paul, in verse 1, glancing back at chapter 7, 
declares that there is therefore no condemnation. Now, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The therefore is in relation to the final verse of chapter 7, where he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is a very confusing verse, but in light of what we have just read about the covenant, namely that God would write his law upon the hearts of his people and that they would obey the law with all their hearts, Paul is now going to explain how this is happening at the present time while his people are living in a body tainted with the often lingering effects of indwelling sin that continually plague us. And to some extent, uh, even as or even though the spirit has been poured out and the covenant renewed. Let me repeat that. Paul is having to explain how this is happening, how it is that uh, that with the mind he serves the law of God, but with the flesh he serves the law of sin. How this is happening at the present time, while his people are living in a sin-tainted body, with the lingering effects of indwelling sin that continue, continues to plague them, while at the same time the Spirit has been poured out and the covenant has been renewed. There's this tension between living in the Spirit and watching what's happening in our own bodies as it is afflicted by indwelling sin and the flesh that is needing to be overcome. His solution is both faithful to the scriptures and also corresponds to reality. God has renewed the covenant, but God's renewed people are still in bodies of flesh and haven't been completely renewed. That is, their bodies, where the flesh resides, have not been redeemed, though this will happen in the future. It is for that future that we long. See chapter 8, 18 through 27, and especially verse 23, where he says, We ourselves groan for the redemption of our bodies. His solution is to explain reality within, within an already not yet paradigm. In other words, there is a current existence in which we, we live that looks forward to a renewal of the body, the final dealing with the flesh. As we remember from chapter 7, it was the flesh that was the problem. And God is going to deal with flesh. He's going to deal with the condemnation that happens in the flesh through the flesh of the Messiah, as we'll see in, in a few moments. But the current mode of existence is this. With the mind, I serve the law of God. In other words, the covenant has been renewed, and I'm serving God. I'm, I'm fulfilling the law. That's what he would say there. You do fulfill the law in Christ Jesus, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. 725. This current reality of serving the law of God with the mind, once again, living in the renewed covenant, keeping the law in quotes, albeit in a newly spirit animated obedience while serving the law of sin leading to death with the body. This is what is happening. This is the current reality in which we all live. The current reality anticipates in the future a coming reality when our sin-tainted bodies are transformed into spiritual bodies, pneumaticas bodies. 
animated by the Spirit of God at the resurrection. All the while, in our current reality, we live in a state of, and this is the good news, no condemnation. No condemnation, because we have died. We have died with Christ, and we've been resurrected with him, and therefore we live in the present time, though afflicted to some degree by the remaining effects of sin in the flesh, we live in no condemnation. It is for this very reason that we experience in the that that what we experience in the present time is by faith. Faith is not for the fullness, but for the now time, where we anticipate the fullness. In the future, what is seen and experienced by faith will become the reality. From justification, that is being declared in the family, to glorification, ruling in the age to come in renewed bodies. These are in some ways in effect now through the death and resurrection of the Messiah. We have died with him. We are raised with him. We are justified it by faith and we are glorified to some extent we are ruling or we are to put into effect what will be be a, a future reality but we should not and none of us should or would read verse 25 with the flesh i serve the law of sin as an excuse to sin all we want it is simply a recognition of the reality that sin has left its mark on us but that we live in the new covenant, all the while undergoing transformation by the Spirit's work within and among us. To ensure that we don't read it as an excuse to sin, all we want, Paul says that the condemnation-free life is for those who do not walk in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is actually transforming us in the present time as we head for the redemption of our bodies, where the flesh will be soundly routed. This transformation happens as we walk after the Spirit. That is, as we seek to live in accordance with the Spirit's promptings, in accordance with the teaching of the Word, and in communion with God's people. To walk after the Spirit is to experience the release from slavery to sin, which leads unto death. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul's language is dense. What does he mean by the law of the Spirit of life? It's somewhat ambiguous, since he often presses so much into so little. But to tease it out a bit further, it seems that he's talking here about the law in the law of the spirit of life as a principle, a fixed principle that is always operative within the spirit's presence. And this principle is the principle relating to the spirit which gives life, that is resurrection life in its multiple facets and glory as we walk in accordance with the spirit in Christ Jesus. The law, the law of the spirit of life is the, the principle that the Spirit gives life, and He gives life to our mortal bodies. In other words, it is categorical. When you walk in accordance with the Spirit, life results from that. And the operation of this law or this principle has now come into effect by Christ Jesus. 
whereas it was not operating before Christ, through whom the Spirit was poured out on all flesh, what Jesus has done through his resurrection is to send the Spirit to put into effect the covenant life, the new covenant life, to put into effect the operation, the rescue operation by which the sons of God can be put right ahead of time in anticipation of the renewal of all creation. This is where he's going in chapter eight. And it's so, it's so astounding that it's almost unbelievable that what is happening in our lives as a result of the pouring out of the spirit upon his church is a precursor to the renewal of all creation. We'll see how he, how he does this. Because of this, the spirit is not an optional appendix joined to Jesus's work. The spirit is he who puts the work of Jesus into effect, bringing the reality of Jesus's death and resurrection in the lives, into the lives of those who believe in Christ, effectively bringing about new creation through its work. God has always done his work in creation by his spirit. Verse two of Genesis one, the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep and God said, let there be light, right? So the spirit is there in operation in his temple projects. Read, read the book of Exodus 15 and uh, 25 and following where the spirit is actually giving them the creative skills to, to create this temple. This is how God does his work through the spirit. Here's the logic of the passage. The reality of no condemnation, release from death, could not be brought about by the law, verse 3, because the spirit had not been given to the people as a whole. What the law could not do, he says, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his own son with the implication that he sent his son through the spirit since verse three is to be an explanation of verse two. In other words, because the law couldn't bring about the life it promised because of the weakness of Israel's flesh and that of the world as well, the principle of the spirit leading to life has been put in, has put into effect uh, the work of Jesus and this work of God through the Messiah by the Spirit sets him free from the law of sin and death. This is all then brought about. God initiates it through the work of the Messiah. He is bringing about the overthrow, essentially, of the flesh so as to overcome the ruling, the ruling of sin in the lives of his people. He is putting us to rights ahead of the putting to rights of the whole creation. Note verse 3. There's a translation issue here. There's a phrase that many translations simply render as for sin. For sin. And this is the word, it is a word for word rendering, but I don't think it's exactly right. So what, um, what the law could not do, so we repeat this verse, what the law could not do, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Right, so that's how many of your Bibles will probably read. Uh, some of yours may read uh, something else. Anybody have anything else? And for sin. It may be for a sin offering. Right? So, and, and I think that's how it should read. This translation, and for sin, doesn't take into consideration a couple of things. First of all, when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uses the term that we have here for sin, 
this word is used not simply to translate sin, but also to translate sin offering. Sin offering. So if we read it this way, it makes actually makes much more sense. What the law could not do, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. In other words, he made Jesus a sin offering so that the flesh could be, uh, so that, that sin could be condemned in Jesus's flesh. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's not sinful. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh, but sin had to be brought into the Messiah and then dealt with as a sin offering. And this is, this is what happened. In fact, uh, the phrase uh, perihamartias is an exact quote from Isaiah 53.10, which suggests that the servant should give himself for a sin offering. See also Exodus 29.36 and 30 verse 10 for its Old Testament usage. Here's the point. God's way of dealing with sin, which had been working its worst within the flesh of the world in general and with Israel's uh, flesh specifically, was dealt with by Jesus himself being being put forth as the place of atonement, the mercy seat, see Romans 3.25, where sin could be borne away and the very flesh of humanity could have its, uh, its sin rid, rid from it. To do so, he was sent, Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering, and thereby he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. This is what this is the crescendo toward which we've been working uh, throughout this book. That what God was doing through Israel, and this is it's so mysterious, but it's so wonderful when you look back at it. What God was doing through Israel was luring sin into one place in order to lure it then into the flesh of the Messiah and thereby to crucify it. That's what he was doing all along. And this whole experiment, if you will, of, of the law was actually not an experiment at all. It was God's way of luring sin into one, one nation and then luring sin into one human within that nation, the seed of Abraham, and thereby condemning sin in his flesh. He did not condemn Jesus. And that's an important point. He condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. If you are in Christ, Paul would say, your sin has been condemned and you are hidden. You are saved from wrath through him. All of this enables the believer to attain unto the righteous goal of the law. What is that goal? We've seen it a few times. Romans 7.10. And the commandment, he says, which was unto life. He says, I found it was unto death. Okay, for me, it was unto death. It was for life. That's what the law was for, but it produced death in me through the, the snaring work of, of sin. It took advantage of sin and thereby killed me. What was the law wanting to do? Give life, Paul would say. What was it unable to do? Give life. What, God, what did God do in sending Jesus? This is the question. And the answer, Paul would say, is 
gave life. God gave life through sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin. Resurrection life. So in this chapter, we're going to see throughout this chapter, when Paul uses the idea of life, or he uses the word life, he usually is talking about the resurrection, whether it's the future bodily resurrection or whether it's the resurrection that is now taking place day by day within our lives. The righteous goal of the law, sometimes it's translated, I think the ESV says the righteous requirement of the law, but I think it's more the goal of the law, what the, go what the law wanted to do but couldn't do because of the weakness of human flesh finds its completion, its fulfillment in those of us who walk not according to the flesh, pursuing the things of the flesh, but walk in the spirit, pursuing the things of the spirit, life and peace. Once again, the new covenant renewal has been accomplished and the obedience that the law demanded is fulfilled in those who are in Christ Jesus, who have his spirit. It is a life that in, in a very real way puts sin to death, crucifying it along with its passions. Galatians 5.24. Now those who belong to Christ, Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But how do we walk after the Spirit? Does this just happen without conscious effort? No more than learning happens without opening a book or other, some other way of internalizing the information. It involves conscious acts of crucifying the flesh that begin with awareness that we need to be doing it, and they develop as we grow in the Scriptures and in community with others who share the same Spirit of grace. For this reason, community is very important. Sharing in the word of God through the community's witness and through the teaching of the scriptures. But also, hear me on this. There is sometimes like a, a false humility that is really, it seems to me like it's kind of boasting disguised as humility, where we often will we'll talk about just how sinful and awful we are, and then we kind of wallow in that. I'm guilty of it myself. It's like, oh, I'm just simple, you know, just a sinner, just a sinner. When I, when I think, I don't think Paul wants us to be doing that. I think what he wants us to be doing is to realize the victory that has actually been given in the Messiah and then walk in it. Put to death the deeds of the body that you may live, right? So this is, you can't do that. You cannot do it. I couldn't do it when I was wallowing in my past sin. Right? Leave it. Leave that stuff where it was and go forth in a, in a spirit of victory. How many warriors win without confidence? Just in a fleshly sense. Do you win a war without confidence? It doesn't happen. If we want to live in victory, we must realize what we have, put on the armor of God and go to war. That's essentially it. How many warriors win without confidence? They don't. And how many winning warriors are wallowing in their defeat as the war rages? You'll never win a war if you do. None. Why do we think we are any different in this war? You and I are sons of God, he says, who possess the spirit of God, God's son. And this spirit is not a spirit of defeat, but a spirit of victory. 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love 
and discipline. Hear that. This is not about working, doing good works to go somewhere. This has nothing to do with that. You're in the spirit. Do the things of the spirit. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of discipline. What you and I in the wider church will likely face in the future and the perhaps not so distant future with all the canceling going on will require that we be prepared for the difficulties of persecution. If we can't see what's coming down the pipe, we better wake up. No warrior underestimates the cost of war, nor is he unprepared. We must understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is made of flesh and made by flesh. They're not made of steel. They are made by the word of God. They are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. This is where the battle begins. We have the spirit. We have been renewed. We're in the new covenant. We are to live as though we are in it. Let's go forth in its, go forth in its power and the life that it gives. Now, where Paul is going with this is actually through a patch of persecution. And what he's going to say at the end is, in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. He doesn't say everything's pie in the sky, everything's going to just get better and better, and you're headed toward victory, and you're going to vanquish all your enemies, and, and nothing's going to happen. You're going to live in peace, live out your days in peace. It's not what he says. He says, what will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall life, shall death, shall principalities, powers, uh, things present, things to come, nakedness, peril, uh, persecutions. Will any of these things separate us from him? Nay, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is not a spirit of fear. It is not a spirit of timidity or cowardice. This is a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. And if we don't have it, we are going to fail.